Good morning. Reading from John 8, 31 through 47. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How, who, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Good morning. Uh, I think many of you know our family was on vacation last week. It was fast-paced, but good. Big fish, big families, lots of miles. I will show pictures to anyone who wants to see them, but oddly enough, no one's asked yet. <laughs> it's good to go, and it's good to be back. Love you guys. Thanks to Mike and John for filling in in, the, in various ways while I was out, and it was encouraging to listen to John's sermon last week in Exodus and the parallels he was he, he drew was able to draw with our time in John, which is neat because my sermon then builds on his today. We planned that for two three years now. Was that right, John? And and so it just you know that's the kind of eldering you get here. <laughs> As you'll soon notice again, the parallels continue this morning. Let's let's pray. God, thank you very much that. You love us, and you love us, you have loved us, and continue to love us in such a way that you sent your son Jesus to come to earth to fulfill your promises, to be an example, to die in our place, and now to sit at your right hand advocating for us, your people. What a, what a gift, what, what love that is. Thank you that we get to catch a glimpse of what all those things look like in this passage and in all of the Gospel of John and throughout your word. As all of it points us ultimately to Jesus. God, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes wider than they already are. For some, that means passing from death to life. And for others of us, that means growing in holiness, growing 
in Christ's likeness, growing in spiritual maturity. I pray this morning that as your word goes out and insofar as the sermon is faithful to it, that no one in this room would remain unchanged. And I pray right now that this room would be filled with people repenting of being indifferent to whether or not your word changes them, changes us. God, let us care not only for ourselves and our own sanctification or our own salvation, but let us recognize that you have made us a people. We are a part of this body at Grace Church, having covenanted together as members, but also we are a part of the body of Christ, the universal church, all true believers of all time. I pray that we would not be indifferent, even as we sang several times this morning, to our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And I, I can't help but to think now even of our missionaries and the pastors in Ethiopia that Pastor Mike and Matt were able to bless. I, I pray that even now they would be encouraged um, in their memory of Matt and Mike and their team being there and teaching and loving them well. And so, God, I pray that this service and this sermon, this text, would be of benefit to all of us, and not just all of us, but the whole world through us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we got to back up a little bit. John did a good job of this last week. I'm going to go back just a little bit further and then zip through what John did. But Genesis 1 and 2, if you have your Bibles and go all the way to the beginning, you're in Genesis, and you'll find the first two chapters of your Bible record God's very good creation and very good ordering of the universe. By Genesis 3, however, as I imagine most of you know, and as John mentioned last week, mankind had already rejected this very good God and his very good creation and its ordering. The result, as God promised it would be, was curse and death. And therefore, God said to the serpent who'd tempted the first man and woman into sin, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her, her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, embedded in that single verse, Genesis 3.15, embedded in that single verse are two things that we still feel profound reverberations of and feel the effects of today. And the first thing is what's been called the first gospel. And the second is the promise of a great war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. The first gospel is the promise that one of Eve's offspring would eventually fatally stomp on the head of the serpent, even at great cost to himself. I hope you know that that was fulfilled in the cross of Jesus. And the great war has been raging ever since those words were spoken by God in the garden. The victory of the woman's offspring, Jesus, was decisive on the cross but the battle has continued on through today and will continue on until Jesus returns. Well, one of the keys to understanding the Old Testament, how many of you have ever turned to the Old Testament and thought, man, this is hard to understand or this is hard to make sense of? Well, one of the keys that helps unlock it for you so that you can see the glory that is in it, it is not just, the common notion is that the Old Testament is just hard and harsh and, and the New Testament is love and Good news. That's not the case. There is not such a dichotomy. And one of the keys to helping us unlock that is this. 
both the Old Testament generally and the Bible, specifically in the Bible generally, is in recognizing that in large measure, what is the Bible? What is the Old Testament in particular? It is in large measure, or, or the point of it in large measure, is to follow and describe those two things. That is, the line of the serpent stomper from Eve to Jesus, and the nature and state or status of the war at different times in redemptive history between their offspring. You with me? Does that make sense? In other words, one way to understand the purpose of the Bible is to trace the fulfillment of the promise, promises of Genesis 15, the promise of a ser- serpent stomper, and the promise of a great war that would go on between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Again, in other other words, the Bible is a history of the line of the promised serpent crusher and the battle between his people and his enemies. And along those lines, one of the keys to understanding our passage for this morning, so to zoom back into John, is in recognizing that both of those things, the line of the serpent and the battle that is waged, or the battle that is raged since Genesis 3.15, are at the heart of our passage. So to make sense, truly make sense of our passage, you have to have those two things in mind. Because by Genesis 12, so by Genesis 3 was the fall and the curse that we read. Well, by Genesis 12, just a few chapters later, we find out that of all the people on the earth, the serpent stomper would come from the line of a man, a particular child of Eve, named Abraham. In other words, out of all of Eve's offspring, God chose Abraham's family to be a special people. The text tells us, the Bible tells us, that they would be his special people and that God would reveal himself uniquely to them for the good of the world. And in that the promised deliverer would come one day from a descendant of Abraham. It's a big deal. Both of the Genesis 3 promises, it is said, will flow through Abraham. Well, that's why so much of our text this morning centers around a discussion on what it means to be a child of Abraham. That one group believes that they are, and Jesus is telling them to think again. That is the Jews. Because God promised that his offspring, that Abraham's offspring, would be on the winning side of the war because one of Abraham's offspring would lead the rest to victory over the serpent's army. So what we have in our passage for this morning, then, is a glimpse of this battle. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent square off. Given what I've just shared with you, the facts that the battle continued and that the Jews were a part of it shouldn't be surprising. The fact that in in John 8, we have a glimpse of the battle and that that it includes, that the battle's happening and that it includes the Jews should not be a surprise. But what should be surprising, even shocking, if you haven't, if you didn't already know the story, is that the promised deliverer was a part of it, had finally come, and is in this story. It's he's in these verses, and the other thing that should surprise us and shock us, which it did the Jews in this passage, was that the battle lines weren't what any of the Jews thought they would be. You with me? It, the, the battle lines weren't drawn where they thought they were going to be drawn. And so in these few verses, Jesus describes in plain language the marks of those on the side of the promised Redeemer, him, Jesus, 
and those on the side of the soon-to-be-defeated serpent. He also sorted everyone who was listening to him out into the respective camps in a way that they didn't expect. The main takeaway for us, then, is to consider these marks. He, he gives us the marks of both sides of this cosmic battle that rages. Our main takeaway is to consider the marks. Consider which side, then, to look for those marks in us. Consider which side they indicate we are on. With the knowledge that the people in the story believe they were on a side different than they really were. And all in order that we might either change our allegiance to Jesus or grow in our allegiance to him. And so to those ends, from a high level, I want to walk us through. There's 12 contrasts. I'm just going to name them. The, the children of the devil are this, and the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, are this. 12 contrasts. I'm just going to name them. And then we're going to zoom in on three categories into which they fall. What do the children of Abraham and what do the children of the devil hear? What do the children of Abraham and what do the children of the devil love? And what do they what do they do? Before before naming the contrasts, I need to make sure we're on the same page with just a couple more things. While the ultimate battle is between the seed of the woman, that is Jesus, and the seed of the serpent, the devil himself, the entire world, every single person in it, including all of us, is aligned with one or the other. Every one of us represents or is represented by either the woman or the snake. There are no neutral parties. Settle on that. Not your neighbor, not your nice postman, not somebody on the other side of the world you've never met, not you or your kids. Everyone is aligned with one or the other. More than that, not only are we aligned with one or the other, we are all always, whether you knew it before right now or not, participants in the war, for goodness or evil, for light or darkness, for truth or lies, for life or death, for righteousness or sin. Again, a big part of what Jesus did here was to clearly define the marks of those on each side and make sure everyone who heard him knew which side they were fighting for. And that's what he offers us as well in this text. And so those things set us up well then to consider and carefully the true marks of each side in order that we might prayerfully examine our own hearts and where they are in them. So what is it then? Ask yourself. I hope you already are. What is it then that distinguishes the true children of Abraham from the imposters who unknowingly, in the case of John 8 anyway, were on the side of the serpent? Consider with me these 12 contrasting marks. Number one, the children of Abraham, we saw this two weeks ago in, in verse 31, but the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, abide in Jesus' word. While Jesus' word finds no place in the lives of the children of the devil. Second, likewise, the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, abide in Jesus' word, while the children of the devil abide in the words of men, sinful men and wicked men. Third, the children of Abraham know the truth. They have the truth and they know it, they understand it, but the children of the devil know only lies. The children of Abraham have been freed while the children of the devil remain enslaved to sin. These are the marks that Jesus gives his hearers, including us now. Number five, the children of Abraham remain in the house of God forever, but the children of the devil will be forced to leave. 
Number six, the children of Abraham have listened to, believe, and follow Jesus, while the children of the devil seek to kill him. The children of Abraham do what Abraham did. We'll talk more about that later. While the children of the devil do what the devil does. Number eight, the children of Abraham love Jesus, but the children of the devil want to kill him. They're filled with hatred. Number nine, the children of Abraham know that Jesus was sent by and speaks for the Father, while the children of the devil remain blinded to those truths. Number 10, the children of Abraham hear the words of God, while the children of the devil do not. Number 11, the children of Abraham understand Jesus' words, and they speak truth. But the children of the devil are confused and speak only lies. And number 12, the children of Abraham acknowledge the righteousness of Jesus, while the children of the devil accuse him, unable to convict him of sin. Again, the two main things I wanted to help you see with this high-level overview before we dive back in are, one, there was a good deal of confusion in the time of Jesus concerning what it meant to be a child of Abraham among those that Jesus was speaking to. There was a great deal of confusion of what that meant. And second, the contrast between the true children of, the, of Abraham and the true children of the devil could not be any starker. Does that make sense? As you heard me name those 12 things, one thing I hope you noticed is that the children of the devil are in many ways defined by being the opposite of the true children of Abraham. Well, having considered this from high up then, I want to dive back down and look more closely at three categories that Jesus gives us that all of these contrasts fall into. In other words, when we combine all that Jesus said, we see three things in particular define the distinction between the children of Abraham and the children of the devil. And again, here they are. Number one, what they hear or understand. The children of Abraham hear and understand one set of things. And the children of the devil hear and understand something different. Number two, what they love. And number three, what they do. So the first of the three main distinctions made between the true children of Abraham, the true children of God, the true offspring of Eve was the children, and the children of the devil or the serpent is in what they hear, take in, and are able to understand. The two different sets of offspring listen to and understand two completely different voices. Again, it shows up perhaps most clearly in verses 31 and 32, but since I preached on those two weeks ago, I just, I'll just briefly touch on this one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are, my true, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, the main idea here, again, as we saw earlier, is that the children of Abraham abide, remain, continue, stay, reside in Jesus' word. When Jesus speaks, including for you and I as we read his words in the Bible, when Jesus speaks, the true children of Abraham listen. We're eager to listen, and, and, and we do understand. Abraham's children are marked by an eagerness to hear Jesus teach and clarity when we hear his voice. The implication, which will become explicit soon, is that the opposite is true for the children of the devil. Jesus' words are awkward and unpleasant, which for me is a lot like listening to country music. It's, it's awkward and unpleasant, kind of screechy and whiny. For those who do not belong to God. 
That's, that's subjective. I know that. It is confusing and distracting. It is angering and annoying at times. The contrast is sharp indeed. We see the same idea in verses 37 and 38, our passage for this morning. The children of Abraham and the children of the devil hear and understand things very differently. Look at 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. That, that statement Jesus makes will become important in just a bit. We'll come back to that. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. That too we'll come back to in a bit, that last clause. The first thing to grasp here is that the word Jesus used here, offspring, says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, is different than the word he's going to use in just a bit in verse 39, children. Far from a contradiction where Jesus seems to say you are his children in this passage and you're not two verses later, far from a contradiction then, Jesus was making an important distinction. It is one thing to be of the physical lineage of Abraham, which Jesus acknowledges his hearers were, that is, of his seed, is more, a more literal translation, and another to be his true child, which Jesus is going to argue that they're not. Jesus acknowledged that his audience was certainly comprised of the former, but few, if any, of the latter. The next thing to see is more explicit in the text than that, largely because of what we saw in 31 and 32, and in tragically certain terms. There's not ambiguity here. Not only do the children of the devil not want to hear Jesus' word, and not only does it make little or no sense to them, and not only does it stir anger in them, but it truly finds no place in them. There, there is no place for them to put Jesus' actual teaching in their thinking. It's like a square circle or the smell of seven. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. There's no place to put it or keep it or make sense of it. For the children of the devil, Jesus' word simply finds no purchase in their minds or hearts. It's one of the things that marks the children of the devil is how they respond to the words of Jesus. This, this I, I know many of you know this, but I, I think it's worth repeating. This was my explicit experience for the first 18 years of my life. For different reasons and in different ways, the, the words of Jesus were around me in a fairly regular basis at least, but none of them made any sense to me at all. I, I had them and there, there, of course, was a type of intellectual understanding, but it is so easy looking back to see that it was like there was some protective film around them keeping me from making any real sense or, or coming to any real understanding. I, again, if you've heard my testimony, you know that often I describe it like I was given the pieces of a thousand-piece puzzle. I had all the pieces but nobody ever showed me what the cover looked like to see how they would fit together. That's this. That's what Jesus is saying. And I, I, don't, I don't know that I could have experienced that personally on a more profound level. But here's the thing. And again, this I experienced as well. This is one of the most devastating critiques you can imagine. What do I mean by that? Listen to this, Grace. If Jesus' word is the one, the only one, or the one and only true source of life, the one and only true source of goodness and beauty and truth and salvation. It is a kind of tragedy for sure to be marked by ignorance of it. 
If it is the one and only source of goodness and beauty and truth and life and salvation, if that's the only place those things are really found, to not have it or to not understand it is a tragedy, one one kind for sure. It's another kind of tragedy to have it but be confused by it. And it's another still to have it, understand it on some level, and outright reject it. Those are all tragedies to be sure. But far more tragic still is the idea that those words simply cannot exist in the children of the evil one. That they have no place. That that no matter what happens, they don't fit. That they are entirely incompatible. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so for that reason, he concluded, why don't you understand what I say? I've come to you from the Father. I'm speaking to you only what the Father has said to me. I'm giving you his words, but you don't understand. Why do you not understand? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. It's another way of him saying the same thing. And therefore, whenever Jesus spoke, the children of the devil, the serpent, could not understand. Well, he got more explicit still. Jesus named what he had just previously implied. Several times he talked about their father and they would go back and forth with him. Abraham is our father. And he's, uh, well, what did he really mean by that Abraham is not your father? He tells us explicitly, you, you are of your father, the devil. And among his chief characteristics, the devil's chief characteristics is the fact that he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That is, he is the one who gave birth to all liars. He was the first liar on earth and all liars were born of him. Again then, the children of the serpent, the children of the devil, those who are merely physical descendants of Abraham, listen only to their father, the devil, and he speaks only lies and deceit. How tragic is it then in this great war? that the enemies of God give themselves to only to hearing only lies and that only lies make sense to them when they hear them. As if to put a giant exclamation mark on it, Jesus added, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Again, that's, that's another way of saying that the truth or my word has no place in you. He says it is because I tell you the truth that you do not believe me. If I told you a lie, you'd believe me. But it's because I'm telling you what's true that you don't. Again, it is precisely because he told the truth that the children of the serpent couldn't believe. We need to be shocked that in spite, again, of Jesus' words coming directly from the Father, the very Father that they claim to believe in, belong to, it is because of that that they were, these, his words were entirely foreign to them and utterly frustrating to those whose father was the devil. In the end, one of the great dividing lines between the children of the woman and the children of the serpent is the simple fact, verse 47, that whoever is of God, whoever is truly of God, whoever is a true child of Abraham, a true child of God, a true offspring of the woman, whoever is of God hears the words of God. When, when they come to us, they make sense to us and transform us, and we love to hear them. And therefore, one of the primary reasons Jesus' words continued throughout John's gospel to fall on deaf ears was because his hearers were, Jesus said, again, verse 47, not of God. 
And so all of this forces us. It, it, it needs to, anyway. This is, this is a way to look for this mark in you. Which one do you bear? It forces us, if we're God's children, to ask ourselves, what are we primarily listening to? And what makes the most sense to us? If you, if you were to take an inventory of everything you believe, how much of it are you able to trace straight back to the Bible, to the Word of God? And how much of a biblical perspective shapes your beliefs? In other words, how much of what you believe comes from the Bible and how much of the Bible determines what you believe? What happens when you sit down to have your quiet time? Do you sit down and have a quiet time? And if so, what happens when you do? These are all marks of the children of the devil and the true children of Abraham. Well, the second main category of distinction made by Jesus between the true children of Abraham and the children of the devil was their greatest love. I think you know this, Grace. The most important, the greatest commandment, which Jesus affirmed, the most important commandment of all, the sum of all the commandments was given to Abraham's children in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Well, here's the thing. Just as they were certain they were Abraham's children, the people Jesus was speaking to, just as they were certain they were Abraham's children, there's no doubt that Jesus' hearers believed that they loved God above all. There was scarcely a corner of their lives that didn't contain some type of reminder, some type of millennia-old reminder of old stories and practices and beliefs, stories and practices and beliefs that were rooted in God choosing them to be his special people. They gained and given spectacularly by aligning themselves with God. Did they love him? Of course they loved God with all they had above all. But, look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, if he was, then the way you think he is, you would love me. Jesus' point was simple. Whatever claim his hearers might make to love God, whatever, whatever claim you might make to love God, begins, certainly, with what you do with Jesus. Whatever claim his hearers might make to love God was entirely disproven by the rejection of him, that is, of Jesus. Whether they didn't love God at all, perhaps, whether they were mistakenly loved something that they had mislabeled as God and Jesus was dispelling, dispelling them of that misunderstanding, whether they only loved some idea of God, or whether they love nothing more than some small piece of God that was convenient for their lives, the fact that they rejected Jesus proved that they lacked any genuine Deuteronomy 6.5 love. Jesus not only stated it, he also explained it. For I came from God and am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. In other words, Jesus said, if your love for God was real, if it's real love and God you really loved, you would recognize him in me. To know God is to know me. To have seen God or understand God is to have seen me and understand me. You would recognize him in me and rejoice that he sent me. God sent me to bless you, 
That's it. I've come to reveal more of the Father to you, more of his will, and to give my life as a ransom for your sins, according to his great design, promised way back in Genesis 3.15. But instead of loving me for these things, though, you're filled with hatred for me. And that shows that you do not love the God you claim to love. We see this fairly often today, don't we? I found it in my own heart. I certainly see it around me. All around us, people, including us, create something in their minds. They call it God. It's easy to slap the label God on something of our own creation and believe that they believe in God. Some conjure a God to reject and hate, but many one to admire and love. This is The point of this is not that you need advanced degrees in the Bible to know and love God, but you do need to know true what's true about God. And the center of what it means to know and love God, at the center of what's true about God, is to receive Jesus as God in the flesh, the Lord and Savior of the world. You cannot have God, much less love God, Jesus says here, if you do not have and love Jesus. And so again, I ask, this forces us to ask, That genuine love for Jesus is a key mark for the true children of God calls us to consider our highest love. What is it that you love most? You don't have to tell me, but you have to be honest with yourself about this. What is it that you love most? What is it that you most desire? What is it that you've primarily given yourself to? Where it is Jesus in increasing measure. None of us does this perfectly. But where it is Jesus in increasing measure, this passage helps us to see that that is a mark of being a true child of the promise on the side of the offspring of Eve and on the side of God's light and life and victory. Lastly, the third and final category that Jesus gives us here, that these 12 contrasts fall into, is that of doing. The children of Abraham and the children of the devil hear, understand, and do things very differently. In these few verses, Jesus mainly focused on what the children of the devil do. It probably goes without saying then that the children of Abraham are marked by not doing these things. As we saw the the last time we were in John 8.34, the children of the devil do, practice, obey, insofar as they are enslaved to sin. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In our passage today, Jesus expanded on what that means and looks like. And to that end, Jesus came out swinging. (laughs) You might think he'd start with a small one of their sins, just to sort of, you know, get things moving. He didn't do that, as he's prone to do. He said, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. The children of the devil do murder. To make sure this wasn't misunderstood and that they didn't think he was just speaking metaphorically. He expanded on it later in verse 44. Jesus said that they were children of the devil who, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. The children of the devil murder because that's what the devil has done from the start. He killed Adam and Eve spiritually by tempting them into their sin. And within a few years, he led one of their sons, Cain, to commit the first physical murder against his own brother, Abel. In addition to their murderous hearts, which John tells us in his letter, having murderous intent is to make you a murderer, 
Surely some of the people present in this passage were among those who yelled, crucify him, just six months later, participating in Jesus' physical death as well. More than that, though, Jesus told his audience, more than just this one serious thing of doing the work of murder, Jesus told his audience that their every desire and therefore their every action came through their father or came from their father, the devil. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and it is, and your will is to do your father's desires. Although they believed themselves to want the things of God, their desires, Jesus said, were the devil's desires. It was a mark. And therefore, although they believed themselves to be doing the works of their God, of, of God, their actions were those, were the devil's actions. Jesus explained that while they sought to kill him, or that, that 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 was why they sought to kill him, because they were doing the works that their father did, verse 41. And so in a neat summary, Jesus said this, I, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Positively, those were the marks of what the followers of the evil one, the offspring of the devil do. Positively, Jesus taught that the true children of Abraham do the works that Abraham did in verse 39. Well, what, what was that? Above all, Abraham did the work of believing in God. And that, not obedience to the law, was what God can counted as righteousness. To be a true child of Abraham, what, what's the mark of that? What do you do? Well, to be a true child of Abraham, then, is above all to do the work of believing God in everything, and especially that he sent Jesus to be an example and teach truth and die in our place and rule the world in glory. And so the main point of all this and is in large measure the simple fact that not all of Abraham's physical descendants are among his true children. It is Jesus' teaching in passages like this one that led the Apostle Paul to write, for no one is a Jew, a child of Abraham, a true child of Abraham, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. That's what Jesus was trying to communicate, and Paul said so succinctly. And so, Grace, the lines were drawn in places very different than Jesus' hearers, the Jews, the physical lineage of Abraham imagined. And the sides were sorted way differently than they imagined as well. And so all of us, you and I, ought, therefore, to carefully consider these things also. The Bible goes to great lengths to help people who believe they believe but don't know that they don't so that they might. That's Jesus' point here largely as well. We ought, therefore, to carefully consider these things in our own lives. It is a high priority of John to help his readers do just that, as he recorded story after story after story of those who didn't. And so it seems good to conclude, just almost done. It seems good to conclude with something we all ought to be asking yet again. How do we come to a place where we are marked by hearing and loving and doing the things that God calls us to in this passage? How, how do we get from being a child of the serpent to being a true child of Abraham? How do we get from Jesus' word having no place in us to longing to hear it and be transformed by our understanding of it? How do we move from being enemies of God to loving him with all that we have? And how do we move from doing the works of the devil to doing 
works of righteousness prepared in advance for us by God. How do we move from one to the other? Jesus doesn't answer that in this passage, but it's a good time to remind us of what he already said just two chapters earlier. In order for this transformation to happen in us, in order for us not to remain like those who stood before Jesus dumbfounded and planning out his murder, his crucifixion, in order for us to not remain like those in front of Jesus, confused and angry and hateful and rebellious. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. And I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. The simple fact that Jesus repeats over and over is that the ability to hear and understand and love and obey Jesus is a gift from God. Since we are all born dead in sin, and since one mark of sin's death is spiritual blindness, we need God to open our eyes to behold the wonderful things of God in Jesus Christ. And as we have eyes that can see, finally, that are lit up with truth and goodness of Jesus, we can see our own sin for the first time, and we can see our rebellion against God, and we can see that we've been aligned with the evil one, so that we can throw ourselves before God in Jesus for mercy, and we will certainly receive it. So let's take a moment now before we eat and drink together. And ask God to do just that, to do that in us today, in the certain knowledge that as we come before him in faith, he will hear our prayers and grant us sight and grant us life and make us true children of Abraham.